Morning, everybody. Jim Douglas sitting in today on Vermont Viewpoint. Great to have you with us. Uh, quite a blustery day, a surprise snowstorm over the last uh, 24 hours or so. We even caught the crack meteorologist by surprise, uh, which is uh, uh, quite unusual. And still uh, uh, a lot of our friends and neighbors without power, 6,000-ish uh, statewide, most of them in Washington and Orange County. So uh, we appreciate the hard work that the power crews are doing to get them restored and want to do what we can to help our uh, neighbors who might need a little extra help while they're uh, while they're without power, especially because the weather is not going to be too uh, too balmy today. So we'll be thinking of them. Um, we got a great show uh, today. We're going to chat with uh, Matt Dickinson, our our political science uh, professor. Uh, colleague at Middlebury College in just a, just a moment. At 9.30, uh, Alex Farrell is coming by. He's the uh, uh, brand-new housing commissioner for the state, uh, although he's not really new to the, uh, to the topic because he's been deputy commissioner for a while, and uh, he's a great guy, and um, uh, I know he's going to make a real uh, positive difference in that role for, uh, uh, for the housing uh, community. And at uh, 10 o'clock, we're going to be chatting with Paul Dame, the Republican state chairman, about the state of the GOP in the Green Mountain State. Um, uh, I think arguably it's uh, had uh, better days back in the glory period, um, but uh, we'll, we'll see what Paul has to say about its uh, status today and the future uh, in the near term. And at 10.30, we're going to wrap up with a conversation with a, uh, a very distinguished uh, gentleman, Dr. Bill Beach, who uh, worked in several roles in the federal government um, before retiring recently. Uh, and now we've been able to snare him at the Coolidge Foundation as a uh, fellow uh, who's working on uh, a big conference in a couple of months, uh, mostly on economic and fiscal policy, I believe. So we'll we'll get uh, his thoughts. And, of course, this is the centennial year for President Coolidge. He was sworn into office in the summer of 1923, and it's been uh, been a lot of fun. But let's uh, chat now with Matt Dickinson, a professor of political science at Middlebury College. And, uh, Matt, I know Tuesdays are busy for you, so thank you so much for carving out some time to be on the show. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Governor. Well, um, the polls are uh, running rampant out there, and um, the uh, the election's only, what, 340 days away or something like that. I haven't actually counted um, but it, it shows at this point uh, a lot of strength for the former president, despite uh, a lot of his uh, legal and other challenges. Um, so uh, sh- should we just call it a wrap and figure we're going to have uh, uh, the second coming of Grover Cleveland? What do you think? Well, he is up, as you point out, in the polls by about two to three percentage points nationally um, in the key battleground states. Uh, he's leading in five of six of them for which we have reliable polling. I would point out he was almost never ahead in the polls head to head with Hillary Clinton in 2016. Um, and similarly for against Donald Trump and uh, sorry, against Joe Biden in 2020. So this doesn't necessarily bode well for Biden. But if you are a glass half full Democrat, um, as you point out, it is almost a year away. A lot can happen, and typically polls this early, at least at the national level, are not predictive of the national popular vote a year later in the presidential election. And the reason is because a lot of people simply aren't thinking about the presidency in terms of a head-to-head matchup. They're just thinking about, well, do I like the way things are going now? And a lot of people don't. And 
fairly or not, Joe Biden takes the blame for that. But as that perspective begins to shift, as they begin to think about the 2024 election is not a referendum on Biden, but as a head-to-head matchup, um, I expect that Biden's support will grow. That's not to say there's not a lot of warning signs, and we can talk about what some of them are. But uh, if you're a Democrat, all is not lost yet, but you should be worried. Well, it's interesting that um, uh, in the olden days, meaning 20 years ago, when I was uh, more involved in these things, uh, the, the common uh, school of thought was that if an incumbent's favorability is below 50 percent, then uh, he or she is indeed vulnerable. And, and uh, President Biden is, is well under that, isn't he? He is. And if that favorability disadvantage continues, uh, you're absolutely right. He is in trouble. His approval ratings right now are low as well at about 40 percent. They've been consistently low since really the summer of 2021. Um, and if they remain that low um, and they have not gone up, um, so the betting man might argue there's no evidence that they will increase, then he'll be in trouble. So, again, I don't want to be too much of an optimist here from a Democratic perspective. You should be concerned. Um, I just don't think it's a done deal this early. Well, I recall uh, uh, some years ago, President Dean was uh, leading the polls at this point in the cycle. So That, that is correct. Uh, I would point out um, we're assuming that Donald Trump is going to be the nominee, and I think that's a, uh, a safe assumption, but it's not a foregone conclusion. You mentioned 340 days for the general election, but it's only about 55 until Republicans begin voting in Iowa. Um, and there is a spirited contest going on for uh, the claim to be the alternative to Donald Trump in the off chance that his legal troubles somehow disqualify him from running. So uh, I don't want to sound as if this is a sure thing Trump-Biden matchup. The numbers suggest it will be, but the voters decide. Well, and appropriately so. And, of course, in Iowa, it's a caucus system, not a primary. So um, there's always a lot of talk about the, quote, ground game, unquote. And uh, it has a lot to do with organizational efforts on the part of the candidates, right? Yes, and local endorsements can matter. Kim Reynolds, um, I don't know if you overlapped with uh, her, but she has come out and endorsed one of Trump's rivals, Ron DeSantis, as has um, a lot of local power brokers. And we know, uh, although it's a fairly high turnout state in terms of the caucus, the overall numbers are low. And the evangelical vote is really important there because they do show up. Um, and so Ron DeSantis and, for that matter, Nikki Haley um, are both courting that very important evangelical vote. I, I didn't overlap with Governor Reynolds, but I know her, and uh, um, she's certainly done a great job and is very, very popular in uh, in the state of Iowa. We're chatting with Matt Dickinson, professor of political science at Middlebury, about the forthcoming uh, presidential political cycle, which is uh, never seems to go away, but <laughs> but it's even more imminent than it might be at some other uh, point. And it's uh, we always say it's, this is going to be a fascinating election year, and I guess we're always right. But uh, one thing that distinguishes this one, Matt, is that we've got two, um, um, I have to be careful how I say this, uh, a very mature uh, front runners on the Republican and Democratic side. And, and um, uh, President Biden in particular has been uh, uh, the subject of a lot of uh, speculation about his uh, vitality uh, because he is 81. 
would be 86 at the end of another presidential term and doesn't seem to have um, the spring in his step that he once did. So to what extent is that a, a factor, do you think, in the minds of voters? Well, again, polling suggests that uh, even among Democrats, a significant plurality um, uh, or a minority, depending on how you gauge the question, of about 40 percent or so, have openly stated they'd prefer another candidate to run. But, of course, who is the other candidate? Uh, so I think there's real concerns about Biden's age. And um, if you're a Democrat, you're worried that that makes him vulnerable. Certainly younger voters, there is some evidence, again, it depends a little bit on the poll, that they are the weakest um, group in terms of support. They're typically voting Democratic, but um, that age gap really worries them. So I think there is a concern there. Of course, that means the choice of the vice president um, is crucial, and there's no evidence right now that um, – Kamala Harris is going anywhere. But it also raises the question about a third-party candidacy. Uh, and, and so far, nobody has jumped in to challenge Biden and in a significant way within his own party. But there is a lot of third-party movement um, that suggests some dissatisfaction with both of the potential uh major party nominees. Yeah, and I want to talk about that in uh, just a moment, too. But you, you raised the issue of the vice president. There's a, a long-standing uh, school of thought that uh, people vote the so-called top of the ticket and really don't care who the running mate is. But I remember in uh, uh, 2008 when uh, uh, John McCain was uh, a real oldster at 73 or whatever it was at the time, uh, people did start to focus more on the running mate, especially because of the health issues he's had. And I think, uh, as you suggest, with the uh, octogenarian president, that might be true again. And and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, the vice president's numbers uh, in terms of favorability are no better than the president's, right? They really aren't. And you're absolutely right about 2008. And partly the reason that Sarah Palin uh, became an issue is that the Democrats made her an issue. And so you can expect that Kamala Harris, maybe um, in part because she is not very popular, um, may become part of the campaign debate here as a way for Republicans to remind everyone of Joe Biden's age. You mentioned the, the shift in uh uh, young voter sentiment or, or perhaps uh, a potential shift there. Another uh, uh, change that I thought was particularly interesting is that uh, President Trump seems to be stronger than he was among minorities, uh, specifically black and Hispanic voters. So, uh, what, what do you make of that? Yeah, that's the most fascinating aspect, I think, of the current political era. It is a trend that preceded Donald Trump but is certainly um, continued during his one term in office and then through Joe Biden's um, first term as well. We're seeing an erosion of support among uh, voting blocks that are traditionally viewed as strong Democratic voters, uh, Hispanics mostly, but also even African-Americans in key states. Biden won about 92 percent of African-American vote, which is typical for a Democrat Polls suggest now he's down to 70, 75 percent in key states like Michigan and Georgia. Now, that may seem like it's overwhelming, but given the margins in those states, a loss of 20 percent of support among African-Americans could cost him those key battleground states. And, then, you know, there's a there's a, a book out 
um, recently by a couple of political scientists, including Rui uh, Teixeira and John Judas, that looks at the erosion of Democratic support, um, aptly titled, Where Are All the Democratic Voters Gone? Um, and they suggest that the Democrats have moved too far left on social cultural issues, uh, and a lot of uh, Hispanic and black voters are relatively conservative on those issues and much more focused on bread and butter pocketbook issues. Uh, and that is leading them to, if not become Republicans, at least uh, much weaker support for the Democratic Party. This, as I said, is a long-term trend. And if you're a Democrat, you have to worry about that. Well, I recall during the last uh, election cycle, President Trump, uh, or candidate Trump, I guess in 2016, suggesting at a rally with uh, black voters, hey, what do you got to lose? Give it a chance. uh, Maybe some are prepared to do so. Matt, before the break, you uh, uh, raised the issue of third-party candidates. I want to come back to that. Uh, We certainly have heard some uh, uh, talk of them, uh, uh, announcements by some of them. Uh, One uh, well-known name came to Vermont for a big rally a few months ago. What what do you make of um, uh, the impact of third-party candidates generally, and what do you see lining up this time? Well, it is interesting. Um, If we look within the Democratic Party right now, um, we talked about Joe Biden's weak support, and there's about um, 10 to 12 percent of people who, when given a choice between Biden and a couple of opponents, Marianne Williamson and Dean Phillips, about 10 to 12 percent of them are supporting not Biden. But then when you move outside and you look at third party candidates, uh, you have to start with Robert Kennedy Jr., who initially challenged Biden within the Democratic Party, figured the rules were rigged against him, and is now waging a pretty spirited third party candidacy. He's polling at about 15 percent nationally. Now, is he going to win? Um, no. Uh, the odds are stacked against him, but he can play the spoiler role. And you know as well as anyone um, in previous presidential elections, those third-party candidates, depending on where their support comes from, can be determinative. Um, you know, think about 2000 and Ralph Nader in Florida. Um, so I think there's a an opportunity for a spoilers role here by Robert Kennedy. Uh, and there are other third party candidates, Cornell West as well. And the question is, where are they drawing their support both geographically and from which candidate? And right now, Kennedy in particular seems to be drawing about equally from Trump and Biden. Um, we'll see how that plays out. But historically, third party candidates at this stage, a year out, do not generally attract 15% of the popular vote. Uh, so this is an unusually potent threat to both those front runners. And uh, Jill Stein is in again. Uh, she drew a few votes yeah. in the last cycle. But, uh, the other name that uh, has been uh, um, mentioned is Joe Manchin. What do you think uh, his future is? Well, we have we don't have polling data on him yet because he just announced that he um, has recognized that he probably would not win re-election in West Virginia, and so he's left. But he is making all the noises of a uh, presidential candidate here. He's going on the um, listening tour, um, going cross-country. I, I sense right now as he's working behind the scenes to see how much support he can get 
can he get on ballots? That's always a problem this late in the race for third-party candidates. And does he have the money? If the answer to both those questions is yes, I expect he's going to throw his name in the hat. And he, more than even Kennedy, I think, um, could be a potential spoiler role here. And you uh, make a good point about ballot access. It's quite easy in Vermont. Uh, we're very accessible here. You can get on um, if you decide to run a day or so before the filing deadline in January for our presidential primary. But in other states, it's quite onerous and early. So uh, uh, just because someone announces doesn't mean that he or she will be on 50, 50 ballots. So a lot of practical considerations there. Um, you raised another interesting question, Matt, before the break, and that is uh, the, the issue of whether it is inevitable that these two candidates, uh, Trump and Biden, will be the nominees. Um, they're, they're certainly the favorites, right? But, but uh, how likely is it that they might not be? Well, there are, I think, two issues. On the Democratic side, does Joe Biden um, – can he be persuaded this late that the Democrats can come up with somebody who is a more viable contender? Uh, and that would require, I think, the party leaders behind the scenes to pressure him to drop out. Um, I don't see that happening um, at this stage. But again, there's always health considerations. The Republican side is even more complicated because, as you know, Donald Trump has been indicted in four separate um, cases, a couple of them dealing with January 6th, uh, one dealing with his financial dealings in New York, and then, of course, his handling of classified documents. Uh, he, he is, of course, entitled to uh, a trial, and this um, process in some of those instances will probably extend beyond the November election, but a couple of them may be resolved before then. Uh, it will be interesting to see whether somebody who has been um, potentially convicted uh, of a crime is still a viable nominee for the party. So there are uncertainty on both those. And of course, Donald Trump, um, comparatively speaking, is a spring chicken, but uh, actuarial tables tell us that he's also an old man. Um, so we'll we'll have to see. There's a lot of uncertainty, I think, uh, in both parties' concern. And uh, as we talked about earlier, um, there's dissatisfaction with both of these these individuals as being potential nominees. Well, it seems like the third cycle in a row when we're going to have uh, two nominees who most Americans don't want or like. Uh, it, it's disappointing in a sense. We're waiting for that generational shift. <laughs> yeah. uh, and um, the candidates who have made the generational claim, the Nikki Haley's and the, to a certain extent uh, even the Robert Kennedy, who is relatively uh, young, um, they just haven't caught on yet. There's just, uh, I think, and that's part of the dissatisfaction, particularly among young voters, uh, with their choices. There's just not somebody out there articulating um, a message that appeals to that, that younger voter. Well, Matt uh, Dickinson, we're, t we're chatting with. We've got a couple minutes left. I, I want to get your take on congressional elections. Um, the entire U.S. House, of course, is up next year and a third of the United States Senate. Um, what's your early take on what's a likely outcome for those chambers? Well, let's start with the Senate because that's easier. There's a 
there's a potential here. Um, there's really five Senate races that could potentially flip. Um, and if all of them do in ways that uh, seem plausible now, the Republicans are going to regain a slim majority in that chamber. And that would make life difficult, obviously, for a President Biden going forward. Conversely, the House, um, you know, there's a nine-seat advantage for the Republicans. This is even after coming off um, the census and the, the redistricting process that more or less was a wash. It's harder to handicap each of those races, but if I was a Republican, I would be worried about losing my majority, in part because the Republican Party has been a mess in the House, as you know, uh, between the effort to find a speaker and the fiscal cliff. And, of course, we've got a couple more potential fiscal cliffs uh, on the immediate horizon. I don't think they've sent the message that they are a party that you can trust to govern, to get things done. So we may see a flip in the control, but a continuation of divided government. Um, that would be my best assessment right now. But, again, we're a year out. A lot can happen. Well, clearly, and uh, you mentioned the mansion seat in West Virginia, which presumably would flip, and that would make it 50-50, and then we'll see what happens in the other four. Well, uh, as we always say, Matt, uh, uh, we'll wait and see. Uh, It'll be interesting. Uh, I hope we'll have the chance to chat again uh, because it's going to be quite a long haul until Election Day. A lot can happen, as you say, especially when we have – candidates who are um, um, senior citizens, uh, to put it uh, charitably. Well, Matt Dickinson, professor of political science at uh, Middlebury College, thanks so much for being with us on the show uh, this morning. Um, We'll be back after the break with uh, the new state housing commissioner, Alex Farrell, to talk about the challenges in finding an affordable place to live. And we will uh, uh, talk about the uh, homelessness situation and uh, all the challenges that our families uh, and friends and neighbors are facing. So don't go away. Jim Douglas sitting in today on Vermont Viewpoint. Jim Douglas sitting in today for, uh, well, for whom? We, we've got uh, kind of rotating hosts, and, and that uh, raises another important point I wanted to, to mention to our audience that a week from today we're going to have a new regular Tuesday host. Uh, Brad Wright is going to uh, be sitting here. Some of you may remember Brad. He was a longtime reporter at Channel 3 in Burlington. He moved away some years ago, went to the big time, and uh, now has come back in sort of semi-retirement to Vermont, and, and he's agreed to... To, uh, uh, to host the Tuesday morning Vermont Viewpoint show uh, starting a week from today. So uh, it's going to be great to have his perspective on the air. He's a very uh, uh, smart and seasoned uh, reporter, and, and so we can all look forward to that. So uh, be sure to extend a warm welcome to Brad when he, uh, he starts here next Tuesday. But meanwhile, um, I'm honored to have Alex Farrell in uh, in the studio to chat on on the show. Alex is uh, I, I called I called you the new housing commissioner. I guess that's <laughs> technically true, although you've been yep. with the department for a little while. You're no stranger to the topic. Yep. Uh, but first of all, congratulations on uh, on being the new commission. Thank you, thank you, Governor. It's it uh, it's a big job at this moment, but uh, it's fun. Like you said, I've been involved for a couple of years already, so uh, it's a continuation of the work. Well, it's a it's a good way to. 
always um, kind of promote from within, uh, get your feet wet, and uh, it, it's good when it works out that way. It, it seems to me, Alex, that um, this is really the issue of our time. Uh, I, I personally have said, you don't have to agree with everything I say, uh, <laughs> that uh, the legislature would have been um, um, better um, engaged if they'd spent more time on housing this last session than even on child care or other things that seem mm-hmm. to be their priorities because um, increasingly we see uh, and hear stories where um, employers can't recruit people because they just can't find a place that's affordable uh, for them mm-hmm. to, to live. Um, there's a lack of housing stock. Uh, the vacancy rate seems very low. So I'd be interested just generally in your assessment of the state of housing in Vermont at this point. Yeah. I mean, Governor, you make a good point. What the answer to a lot of those questions is, is housing. How do we grow the workforce? Housing. How do we make it easier for young families here? Housing. Same thing with grow our, grow our population. Housing. So the state of housing now, as we all know it, the scarcity and the high prices and the, the sort of lack of good options, well, that's a result of decades of underbuilding and really intentional choices, unfortunately intentional choices that were made to limit development in Vermont. And I think part of that is because there was sort of this this false choice that was presented to us, build housing or have a beautiful green Vermont. And what we're now seeing, and and I give a lot of credit to some of the, especially the newer legislators who are coming in and saying, well, hang on, hang on, no, no. We can have a beautiful green Vermont and build housing, and we can make it fair for everybody. And so I think that's why the conversation is now moving in a better direction. We're starting to get some more consensus. Uh, We can carve out some exceptions in these areas where we've got sewer lines, we've got water lines, we've already got schools nearby and and downtowns and villages. We can build there. Why not? We can keep a beautiful green Vermont and make it affordable for people. Exactly right. I, I think of a couple of uh, um, stories along those lines, Alex, and you're, you're exactly right. I remember some of those discussions and <laughs> trying to push back on uh, the heavy hand of regulation that has prevented the development of more housing. But uh, some years ago, we were deemed the second most desirable place on the planet by the World Heritage Council. And what impressed them was our traditional settlement pattern of, of uh, compact villages surrounded by open space. So your point, and one that I tried to make was, okay, let's concentrate in those compact areas where, as you say, we have the infrastructure and where uh, there's already some development and let it happen there while preserving the the farmlands and fields and forests that we have that make the state so beautiful. And secondly, um, back, I think it was in the 70s, I remember a a state legislator from South Dakota coming to the state house to talk about something. I don't remember the topic. But he said, you know, I was flying in there to the Burlington Airport and I... (laughs) I was surprised at how much open space there is here because, you know, you have the same population that we do, but you're like one-ninth the area. So I figured Vermont was just wall-to-wall suburbs. (laughs) Well, as you say, we've got plenty of open space. We can preserve it. We want to, uh, but people have to have a place to to live. So so the issue, I don't want to put words in your mouth, is... Uh, regulatory relief, it right? Is. So how do we get there? Well, it's funny, Governor. I mean, in some ways, people are going to hear a lot of the same things now that were talked about during your administration. And some reports have been dug up from uh, from those years. And, and it's funny because a lot of those same ideas are now coming from legislators. And how, how fascinating. But I, I think people are recognizing that certain uh, certain laws that have been in effect since, since the 70s, let's call it out, Act 250, um, 
people used to say, no, Act 250 is just fine. We can't touch it. Leave it exactly in place. And then finally people are saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why, why did we put Act 250 in place? Is there any chance we put it in place to stop building housing, prevent development? Oh, yeah, that is why it was put in place. Okay, what do we say we take a look at that and start – maybe we carve out a couple exceptions to it. Maybe we – design it to better fit the areas where we want to build and still protect the areas where it's sensitive. But there's a lot of space that we could be building and we would still have a beautiful Vermont. Act 250 was designed to limit housing development. And now there's there's a, a pretty broad acknowledgement of that. I'll point out, I think there are still some legislators who have uh, a little ways to go in, in being convinced of that. And I respect that. I'm happy to have that discussion with them. But The HOME Act last year was a lot of progress in recognizing that, look, housing investment, and by that I mean public investment, sending state dollars, is only part of the equation. We just had the greatest test case in Vermont's history. We funneled $400 million into housing over two and a half years, and we're still way behind. And so what does that tell us? It tells us the system we're trying to shove this money into is not ready for housing. So – We made great steps last year with municipal reform. We asked the municipalities to step up, and uh, I give VLCT and the municipalities credit. A lot of them said, okay, we're going to step up. But, hey, state, can you step up too and and make some changes to Act 250? I don't think we really did enough of that last year. What did we do? We changed the trigger within downtowns and villages so that you don't trigger Act 250 until you hit 25 units instead of 10. Okay, that's a small step forward, but... We're talking about a deficit right now, a point-in-time deficit of almost 7,000 units to reach healthy vacancy rates and to rehouse the homeless. We're not going to get there trying to shove money into the system and nibbling around the edges. Act 250 is still there, and we just need to adjust it, tweak it, keep it keep it as strong as the, the advocates want it, but we need to carve out some exemptions. Makes uh, great sense. So we're, we're chatting with Alex Farrell, the state housing commissioner. And I think uh, in 1970, when the law passed, um, Governor Davis um, made it clear that there were problems, particularly the ski areas, where he saw raw sewage running down the roads because they were trying to build all these uh, um, huge numbers of units on hillsides that were fairly fragile. And 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 so perhaps the law overcompensated for that. And as you say, uh, times change. We're a couple of generations later now and maybe time for another look, especially because of the impact that the shortage is having on us. I I agree completely with your assessment, Alex, that money is great, uh, but we're not always going to have it. And so we have to look at the the underlying problem, which is basically regulatory. I I mean, if uh, um, uh, developers are rational, they're going to do what they can to make affordable units if they uh, can make them so. But um, here we are. Speaking of affordability, um, I've heard stories, I'm sure you have. I was chatting with a realtor just last weekend who told me that um, uh, she sold one home in the Chittenden County for $205,000 over the asking price (laughs) and another a hundred and a quarter over the asking Mm -hmm. price. Well, I I mean, affordable housing is almost an oxymoron, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. And, you know, that scarcity that we were talking about a moment ago, it's really a product of that. And here's the thing. During the pandemic, we did see folks moving to Vermont. And in some ways, people would look at that and say, well, that's a real problem. That's going to drive up. Well, hang on now. We want people to come here. We want people to to come and and provide more dollars for our businesses and and pump more money into the system that can help provide all the support. So 
What's the answer to that? Well, we, we got to do something about that scarcity of housing because if you try to buy a house, say, in the south end of Burlington or, or in, uh, in one of these attractive towns like Shelburne right now or, or even in St. Albans where it's, it's really seeing some, some growth and attention, well, you're going to be paying a lot of money and you're going to be paying over asking. Well, we're paying the price now for what we didn't build in the decades prior, including after the, the crash in 07, we saw, you can see the building permits drop off and they stayed low for many years. And well, now we're paying the price. We want to build and we want people to come to Vermont. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. And employers are uh, making that point, aren't they? Uh, Middlebury College, where I teach part-time, has made some land available to a developer for some housing uh, um, uh, units of various sizes and costs, apparently, in in Middlebury. And uh, that's great. Um, We'll we'll see how it goes as the process unfolds. But but there's a a, a direct interest there because uh, the college, as an employer, is struggling to find places for uh, uh, people to live. And that's happening all over the state. Well, uh, uh, good luck with all that, uh, with educating those <laughs> legislators. Um, um, I appreciate your mentioning the reports from uh, yesteryear, um, <laughs> but I often think of something Ronald Reagan said that, um, you know, um, uh, if you don't care who gets the credit, it's amazing how much you can accomplish. And <laughs> yes. so if they've come to the realization a little later on, well, we'll, we'll see if we can, we can get there. Absolutely. Um, what about um, um, you mentioned municipalities, uh, Alex? Uh, what is their role versus what the state can do? Yeah, the municipalities have already played a strong role, but what can they do? Well, folks need to take a look at their zoning and their bylaws and think: What have we done to make sure that we create an environment in which housing can be built, can be created? So. It's very easy to to take a look at your zoning and say, well, this is what my town looks like. This is how our town has always looked and think, well, we can't can't change it because it will change the look of our town. Well, we've been working with municipalities, and and I want to point to something called that we're titling our Homes for All campaign, and it's it's a a toolkit that one of our teams is putting together. And what it is is um, it's showing folks what infill development can look like, accessory dwelling units that used to be called an in-law suite. Um, uh, adding uh, an infill uh, building behind your house or uh, finding a vacant lot in your town and, and putting a building up there or bringing units back online that have fallen into disrepair. In some cases, in a lot of our towns, we have these old Victorians or farmhouses that you've got one family living in it and using a quarter of the space. That could easily be three or four units. So I bring this up because this toolkit is a way of showing folks that we can bring units online and you would walk down the same street and not know that there's 20% more units. There's a lot of ways to do this where uh, municipalities, if they just make little tweaks, and I'll give you an example. Parking requirements is is one example. We've got some downtowns and villages where there's a lot of opportunities to walk to, to the market, to your office, to whatever it is. But we have these strange parking requirements, and and at times folks will say, okay, so you've got a, you've got a, a driveway that's – two cars deep, three cars wide, but we don't want you to tandem park. So that's only three parking spaces. So I'm only going to permit this building to be three units. Building owner says, well, but but town, I've got five units here. I could be renting this to two more families. Town says, well, I'm sorry, you only can park three cars. He says, well, no, I could park six. They said, no, we don't want you to tandem park. So that's that's just an example of where towns just need to think about it. Well, what are we really trying to achieve with these? And if you're really 
If that really you think is going to change the makeup of your town, well, I, I think we need to rethink how we are putting these requirements on property owners on and, and the impact it has on our renters, our homeowners, everybody. And so just try to find ways to adjust your zoning, adjust your bylaws, and keep in mind uh, my department has funds available to help with that. This technical assistance through municipal planning grants, bylaw modernization, please reach out and we'll help you take a look at this. Well, that's great to hear. We're chatting with Alex Farrell, the state housing commissioner. One issue that came up uh, back in the olden days <laughs> uh, when I was in state government was uh, taking some of these abandoned upper floors of downtown buildings and turning them into housing units. Is any of that happening? It is. It is a little bit. It's not. It's not cheap. So this this is the problem there. And one tool that we've put in place that can help with that is the Vermont Housing Improvement Program. Now, the Vermont Housing Improvement Program is is funded through my department, but is administered by nonprofits uh, throughout the state. And and if you go to our website, uh, vermontaccd.gov, you can find more information on it. But the Vermont Housing Improvement Program provides funds to bring rental units back online that have fallen into disrepair or convert spaces into housing. So take that office space you're talking about, Governor, and and let's say this space we're sitting in right now were vacant. Well, a property owner could take this, get up to $50,000 per unit that they're creating to go towards the cost, and then there's some certain requirements to make sure you maintain certain affordability so that the folks you rent to for the first five or ten years, depending on what you select – can can get it at an affordable rate, but that's a pretty great incentive, fifty grand per unit, and that's how we can make sure our downtown stay vibrant and revitalized. Because empty space above your stores does nothing for us. Well, it's um, uh, great to hear, Alex. So a lot of opportunities, and I guess the message is get in touch with the Department of Housing and Community Development because there are resources available, both uh, professional expertise and money, uh, to help <laughs> you uh, pursue some of these projects. Let's go to the phones. Robert from Bethel, you're on with Commissioner Farrell. Hey, good morning, Commissioner. And, uh, hey, uh, Governor, it's nice to hear your voice and wisdom on the viewpoint. Well, thanks. Um, uh, great thanks. to have you calling in, Robert. What, Good morning. Well, thank you. And uh, it's. Uh, I wanted to thank Alex because he seems like a very logical and pragmatic person. <laughs> and as I said in a, one of the radio broadcasts, uh, the big problem is the property taxes. We can build as much affordable housing, but the owner has to pay the property taxes, which is overwhelmed by the schools, the education program in Vermont, 85% of our property taxes go into education. And it's a major, it's the elephant in the room. I mean, like I said before, if you pay $100 for your quarterly taxes, 85 of those dollars goes directly to the supervisory unions, which there are 54 of in the state of Vermont. And their budgets are through the roof. And we, the education... There's one reason to move to Vermont. It's beautiful, and supposedly education is good, but we don't get we don't get the bang for the buck at 85 percent. So it's it, that that uh, course has to change. Uh, I don't know what to say with finances, but it's a situation where people are. It's kind of like stepping on thin ice. Once you purchase a home, and then all of a sudden you realize. Your property taxes are eighty-five dollars per hundred goes 
to the supervisory unions. Great point, Robert. Uh, let's get uh, Commissioner Farrell's uh, take on that. Alex, uh, Robert is is uh, saying that you know it's one thing to come up with the money to buy a home, but then you have to maintain it, and one of the biggest costs is the property tax. It, well, I, I want Robert to call my wife real quick to point out that I'm logical and pragmatic because I don't <laughs> think she agrees. So, Robert, if you could do that for me, that would be great. But, you know, Robert, you make a good point. We need to make sure that we're making it affordable for the property owner who then has to try to keep it affordable for the renter or, or for the young family that's trying to buy a home. we got to make sure it stays affordable after the purchase. Alex, I want to get your take on the few minutes uh, we have left on the homelessness situation. Um, even down in Middlebury, where I live, uh, we've got an encampment that is is new for us, a uh, new experience, and um, uh, shelters are full. We've been using hotels. We've got pods in Burlington now. What, what's the state of homelessness, and what, what's the path forward? Well, it's a fascinating and tragic situation, Governor, because what we saw during the pandemic was we successfully rehoused out of homelessness thousands of families. We did more rehousing of homeless families during the pandemic than we had in the 10 years prior. It was an astonishing effort, and yet the rate of new families entering homelessness has increased such that it cannot, we cannot keep up. What, what has caused that? Well, there's a couple of things. There were certainly issues during the pandemic that led to an increased rate of newly homeless families. But there's also this, uh, this, what we can see statistically is the correlation between, uh, vacancy rates and rates of homelessness. When vacancy rates are really low and there are not a lot of options, we tend to see higher rates of homelessness. That's, that's been statistically observed throughout, throughout the country and throughout the world. Well, Vermont has put itself in a situation where you have incredibly low vacancy rates, top, top few in the country. And so naturally we are seeing a lot of homelessness because no matter how many vouchers we give, no matter how many options we have to subsidize the rents, people don't have a place to go. So we're using the hotel system. That's not a great situation for folks. It's tragic. That's not a home. We have folks that are still unsheltered. We're going to find ways to help mitigate the real pain for these families, and we hate to think of what they're going through through these holidays. But what's the answer, Governor? It's more housing units. It is units, units, units. Well, it makes a lot of sense, and uh, uh, we hope that we'll get them uh, fairly soon. Um, unfortunately, Alex, our, our time is uh, is coming to a close. We've got other uh, callers on the line we're not going to get to, un- unfortunately. Uh, one, there's a story on this morning uh, on the news I heard coming in that uh, a lot of the folks who are homeless have mental health issues. So are we engaging with that uh, with the human service providers? Absolutely, and I think that's an area where investment could really make a difference. It's making sure that we've got more money in services, case managers, service providers, make sure these folks have the supports they need. Well, a lot to talk about. We hope we'll have another opportunity. But Alex Farrell, Commissioner of Housing and Community Development, thanks so much for being with us on Vermont Viewpoint. We'll be back after the news. Don't go away. 